This is Dawn Tree, and you are listening to Atypical Parenting, the podcast for people who love someone with autism. I'm so happy that you're here with me today because this week I have a wonderful guest. Her name is Anna Bassinet, and she is a high school junior who has started her own organization called Project Typical. And I think that, number one, she's amazing simply because she's a high school junior who has started her own organization. Now, you know, that alone is pretty impressive. But the thing that really gets me about Anna is that her mission, the mission of her organization is to educate younger generations about neurodiversity and also to integrate the two groups of neurotypical and neurodiverse young people. Think about how amazing that is because so often in our society, people are separated based on arbitrary identities like male and female or young and old, rich and poor, right? Just the way we separate people is based on demographics generally, but in this case, neurotypical and neurodivergent. And you know that we have a lot of programs for both of those things, right? Like neurotypical young people, neurodivergent young people, there's plenty of programs, but we also know that it's so rare for programs to integrate these two groups. And integration is key for understanding groups of people who are different than we are. If people who are different never spend time getting to know each other in a relaxed and, and really meaningful way, then just stereotypes and prejudices are gonna continue from one generation to the next. So this organization, Project Typical, brings together neurotypical young adults and neurodivergent young adults on a regular basis and they get to know each other as human beings. They develop friendships, real, true friendships. A friendship between a neurotypical young person and a neurodivergent young person is, in my mind, just absolute magic because it's teaching them both such valuable lessons, right? It's expanding them into better people. For the neurotypical person, it's going to teach them how to put down their stereotypes and how, as they get older, to not judge people based on outward appearances or preconceived notions of them or the group that they belong to. For the neurodivergent individual, it's going to teach them how to relate to neurotypical people. Number one, it's going to allow for the neurotypical young people to model for them so that neurodivergent people can understand how society works and how to engage in a world that's designed by neurotypical people. But I think more importantly for the neurodiverse person, it's a way that they are going to feel accepted and to feel their humanity at its core, right? Like they are going to feel like a human first and foremost. And when you develop a friendship with somebody, eventually all of those differences fall away. And that's what they need. They need to know that they may have differences in their nervous system, but they're the same as you and me. They are human beings with emotions and thoughts, right? And needs and desires. So to have a friendship like this, where each person starts to forget the other person is different, and it simply becomes one young person hanging out with their friend who is another young person, that right there, therein lies the magic in my opinion. This conversation with Anna brought me so much joy because I saw the future through Anna's eyes. 
and I could see how much excitement and hope she has. And if we as adults could find that kind of optimism and hope, I think our world would be a much better place. Join me as we pick up in the middle of this conversation. I hope that you get something out of it. And if nothing else, know that there are good humans out there who are going to give your loved one a chance and not write them off because of their autism. So I think the topic of encouraging interaction between people on the spectrum and neurotypical people, especially maybe like young, good looking neurotypical people is kind of an important thing because how often do people who are on the spectrum who have not been exposed to that go out into the world as adults and say something inappropriate, right? Like that they think is perfectly nice and kind and yet it makes other people uncomfortable. For instance, there was, I just read an article about a young man who was in a taxi that it was like an uber or something and it was a um it was even a community program that it gave people on the spectrum vouchers to use uber to get to programs or something like that and so he was in this uber and the woman driving was uncomfortable with whatever he said to her and she dropped him off in the middle of nowhere and so right like these kinds of everyday interactions happen and that's why it's important to have programs like the one you're involved in. Mm-hmm. I think that's also opened up a big door for everyone, including me, who was in this, who's in this program, is that we've been able to see that it's not just what we see, because we only see the best of it. Everybody who is not the parent or a part of a family who has an individual with special needs does not see the ugly. Yeah, what do you mean by ugly? Because I don't want people to get the wrong idea about what you're saying. So what I mean is every single person, me, you, everyone has some sort of anxiety if it comes to something, has some sort of emotion that's strong. And the neurotypical population knows how to handle their emotions. They know that I'm in a grocery store. Well, most of us, most of the time. (laughs) Yeah. It, d- it really depends on what, what the emotion is, but most of us know yeah. the appropriate time sure. to talk about it and how to express it. So what I mean by ugly is I mean that, for example, let's say they really, really wanted mac and cheese for dinner and they got pasta with Parmesan cheese. That could send someone on the spectrum into a spiral and it depends on the individual of how they handle their emotions, um, but... Someone could have a tantrum on the floor. They could be hitting themselves. They could be holding their ears. It's the little things like that that we don't see. So it's everyday life where life is constantly changing. And everyone has issues with the changes that are made. I get anxious when something gets canceled last minute. But there's a sensitivity to change on the spectrum that's more significant. And only really family members see who are with them all of the time. Yes, and those are the hard things. Yeah, so when we say ugly, we're really just talking about the things that you're not going to put on Instagram or Facebook, right? Like nobody's putting videos of their child when they're doing these things that are difficult to handle, you know? And that's the hard stuff that happens every single day with autism. Life, it's just, it's just much harder in a lot of ways. So it sounds like that it's helping also to break down a lot of the stereotypes that our our society has around autism and and even developmentally disabled folks. Yeah, 100%. Um, I did a speech to 
my high school and my middle school um, about stereotypes and about how it's not them who need to change, it's us. It's, it's everybody. It's family members. It's siblings. It's cousins. It's second cousins. It's everybody. It's the whole population of the whole world who needs to change how they view disabilities. Because in my opinion, it's the most beautiful way of life. It's, it's simple and it's, it's challenging society to realize that you can have a best friend who's nonverbal, which is like revolutionary in my opinion. Yeah, kinda. Yeah. What have you seen parents or caregivers or loved ones do that make those stereotypes worse or make it harder for people to understand their loved one? It's a good question. I think a lot of the time, it really depends on the parents. And a lot of the parents I've met have been amazing and, and seriously. Yes, absolutely. And I'm just sure. heroes. Like I am in awe of so many of the, of the moms and dads that I've met who have kids with autism or anything really. But one of the main things I think is really difficult is when you have a child who is more aggressive or is nonverbal, but also does not show any desire to communicate. So you don't know what they're thinking and you don't know who they want to interact with. So you don't really know. So that's one of the issues is when you have an aggressive um, child, you want to keep them away from others because you're nervous that something's going to happen and it's going to be your liability. So it's things like that where I think parents tend to uh, default to isolation, almost gatekeeping the child um, or the adult, what I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, but we've had to navigate that. We've had mm -hmm. to have an aide hold this uh, adult's hands all the time because he loves to pull hair as a sense of... Uh, his own hair? Other people's hairs. Other people's so hair. So my hair okay. has been pulled up. I've been sitting on the ground. He's been standing up, and he's pulled me up by the hair. So the aides, for safety purposes, especially when you're with younger kids and you're bringing them into a school environment, there's even more liability in there. So the aides do hold the hands. But I always worry that the individual who's being held all the time feels isolated and feels like he's a danger. So... I try to make sure, and my teacher, who, who is the head of our Center for Public Good, we both have talked about trying to make sure that we're having conversations, but maybe it's not as close. Or maybe we're saying mm -hmm. hi, but I'm not going up to him and, and giving him a hug. And maybe right. I'm always aware of my surroundings now because you don't know how someone can greet you, really. We've had people try to kiss people, other, other students. So it's things sure. like that where you need to be aware of your surroundings. I do think you make a really good point, Anna, that a lot of times as parents and caregivers, we do default to isolation or keeping you know, them away from others because we don't want anything bad to happen. We don't want them to be perceived badly and we don't want anyone else to get hurt. And um, But at the end of the day, you're not doing your person any favors. Mm -hmm. You know, and accommodations can be made. Like you said, it's not inevitable that these things are going to happen. You just need to put precautions into place. Let everybody be on the same page who's going to be working with your child or your person. And, and you know, figure it out as opposed to just giving up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
What about, um, what have you seen parents do well? You said you've seen some really amazing parents. There's this one woman who I've known for about a year and a half. Um, and I've always had a great relationship with her son who's 28 now and he has Down syndrome. And he grew up in the Greenwich school system and he has one younger brother and one older brother. And when she came in during um, intercession, during that three-week period to talk to the other students and me about her experience being a mother, she said that she always treated her son with Down syndrome the same way she treated the two others. Like, always. Like, if he gets in trouble, there's no... Like, he's in trouble. Um, hmm. If they're going to a baseball game, they're going to bring the son with Down syndrome to the game, too. So there's no isolation to him because it's going to give him a, an idea early that he's different. So by treating your child the same as you treat your other children, that child's automatically going to be able to walk into the room when they go to school and feel some sort of equality, no matter if it's with people with special other people like them or people who are neurotypical. They're going to feel that they're respected Um and they also are going to have a little bit more of, of a belief in themselves yeah. if at home they're being punished and congratulated, yeah. the bedtime's the same, the diet's the same. If you keep things consistent, the child is not going to have um, a lifetime feeling of difference. As in- It is true. It yeah. is very true. When we, you know, I mean, kids pick up on the way you treat them, mm-hmm. right? They, you may think that you're doing it on the sly and they don't notice but they do they are going Mm -hmm. to notice and they are going to incorporate that feeling of being different into their being and then the difference you know when they look around the world just becomes a feeling of not enough and that is not what we want for our kids yeah I agree very nice so do you think the work that your school does with the population, the special needs population, do you think it uh, encourages young people to go into the field as far as their careers go? Because we need, we need that, you know? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, we need more people who are going into the field with more of an open mind, in my opinion. Mm, what do you mean by that? With more of a sense of, we're not trying to change. We're not trying to cure this population, we're, co- we're trying to yes. adapt to them and find strategies and talk to them and communicate in ways that they feel comfortable, but also the cashier at the grocery store will know how to understand them. Yeah, so we want them to function, right? Like we want to teach them to function while also helping to figure out how to have us adapt to them a bit. Yeah, I think it's a whole new model that's catching on. And I know that autistic adults are advocating for that uh, because it's really kind of unfair for us to put the total onus of changing on the person with the disability, right? It's like saying, hey, uh, I know you can't walk, but um, you should figure out how to shimmy yourself up these stairs because we don't want to build a ramp, right? Like that's ridiculous. And that's what we do to autistic people. Yeah. And to people with other developmental disabilities as well. Mm-hmm. It's not right. Mm-hmm. I agree. I've been doing my junior thesis on the impact of socializing for the neurodivergent population. And by researching different therapies that are available for this population and by researching or by interviewing many different parents of, of, of 
their and their children have many different diagnoses, it's really showed me that autism isn't the only intellectual disability. Just to clarify, autism may have an intellectual disability associated with, but it's a developmental disability. So it's neurological differences, but not necessarily intellectual differences. And in fact, a lot of autistic people are really, really brilliant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I just don't want our listeners to get confused because Anna works with a variety of disabilities in the program that she's in. So it's, um, I, I would imagine that the autistic people you work with, that your frame of reference is, are also developed are also intellectually disabled most of them so is that right the way i i describe intellectually disabled is mainly the social aspect so like when you're going to diagnose any sort of autism or or any sort of developmental disability one of the main diagnoses they look for is just the way they interact socially and so through my work i've realized that the social aspect of it is really all it's based off of. And that's what we need to change is realize that there's different ways of socializing. Oh, that's brilliant. Tell mm -hmm. me more. So this client loves to match things, loves to match clothes. So if I'm wearing red shoes and she's wearing a red sweater, game on. It's her best, the best day of her life. And so by being able to go up to her and say, oh my goodness, look, do you see anything matching on my body to yours? And she can point, even though she might, I not, might not be able to hear her say, you have red shoes, she points. And so by pointing at things, we're having a conversation. Yes. And by someone asking me a question repetitively, and I say, I don't know, you tell me. And they know the answer, but they like the reinforcement of me answering their answer. By repeating it back to them, they get the reinforcement of being correct and of knowing that they know what they're talking about. And they realize, oh, I was just repeating that, but I know the answer. And that's even a kind of a source of communication. As long as you're learning something from each other, that's some sort of progress in our world. And like the satisfaction I get when I ask a question back and, and the, the, the client or, or my friend will answer it correctly. I'm like, see, you know exactly what you're talking about. We just need to find ways that other people can ask it back to you. Yeah. Yeah. I like this idea of communicating in ways that are not necessarily verbal, you know, because mm -hmm. it's true. There's a lot of differences in the way that people with autism communicate sometimes. And we need to be open-minded when it comes to that, like you said. It's a great word, open-minded. For my thesis, I recently met with a man named Chris Abelgard, and he's an expert in a new idea called social think. So it's basically social thinking. So if you go into a room and everyone's crying, you're going to register in your head, okay, everybody's upset, and you acknowledge those emotions. You go into a room and everybody's happy. Everybody's happy, I'm going to be happy. Everybody's sad, I'm going to help them to get better. Socially, trying to think about all of those things is very overwhelming for the developmental difference population. And so Chris runs a center called the Social Thinking Center, I'm pretty sure, the Center of Social Thinking. And the whole thing is just based around teaching individuals who are neurodivergent social thinking and how to communicate. So they do social groups, they go out to lunch, they go get groceries, they do things that are social and require social skills, 
So they can say, okay, I'm at the cash register. She's asking me for my money. I give her the money. She says, have a good day. I say, have a good day. She's smiling at me. I smile back. She says, hello. I say, hello. So it's different things like that with reciprocity and language and communication. That's what he's speaking on. And so that's what I think is a huge part of it too, is I see you, or I see this, or I see that you're, that you're not feeling good right now. So just using the verbal language of I see this in a room and then say, okay, so if I see this, then what do I do? Which I think is really interesting because then it gets into the if-then statements and just trying to come up with ways to succeed in any environment there is. Right. Yeah. So I've talked about this before and I think you're, you're spot on when you say that we need to take our children, our loved ones, our adult children, whatever, out into public places where they can practice their social skills. Because for us, these things sort of come naturally, right? But for people with autism, it's a skill they need to learn. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, they might be born reciting the alphabet or reciting the Bible coming out of the womb. Sure. They might know sure. how to read coming out of the womb. And <laughs> Pretty we... Much don't know how to read or do math coming out of the womb, but exactly. we know how to socialize. And it's the opposite, which is super interesting if you dive into the whole yes. neuroscience of the side of it. It um, is. It's fascinating. It's I fascinating. It really is because there really is no proof of what's going on in the brain, but there's some sort of idea of, of, of activity in the brain that's so much different and it's so much faster and it, there's so much more intelligence. In different parts. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was saying. Like there is so much intelligence going on that I think, you know, there are now with like assistive and adaptive technology, we've seen that nonverbal autistic adults who have been treated as if they're mentally retarded their entire lives, we see now that they're actually brilliant. Right? And they're, they write poetry and music. And their and, memories are a big... Oh my God. I feel... Like it's kind of like uh, dolphins, right? Like who would even think that dolphins communicated? But now we know they have an entire language that they communicate with each other with. It's, it's just, I don't know. It's obviously not the same. I'm not comparing humans to animals, but I think that we have not even scratched the surface on the benefits of being autistic. Mm -hmm. You know, because we look at it through this narrow lens of what we think is quote normal, and we see all these things that aren't the way we, we anticipate they should be. Um, but the more we learn, the more we understand that there is amazingness underneath it all. Um, Chris Avogard, the man who runs the center, he said that everybody's comfortable with communicating with babies who are nonverbal. And everybody thinks that we can communicate with them. Everybody communicates with babies. So then why, when they get older and they're nonverbal, people think that they can't communicate? So that's a really interesting point that I think about all the time. And I'm like, if we can talk to a baby who is a human, who does not talk. Sure. Then how has our world assumed that you can't interact with someone who's nonverbal? Because it's very similar. Something as simple that's a great, as eye contact great analogy. and pointing. Yes. That, that really is enough just to feel noticed. It's true. You're right. I mean, a baby does not talk back to you. 
And yet we have full on conversations with them. We talk to them as if they understand because they generally do understand. Mm -hmm. And and yet when you have an adult who is nonverbal, a lot of times they're just ignored, you know, and they are assumed to be severely impaired or otherwise unable to comprehend. And, you know, that's just how it goes. And that's not right. So you're right. That's a really great analogy. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I, I always think about that. Always. I'm like, that's so true. I've never thought yeah. of that. Huh. Yeah. What have you found in working with autistic adults to be most effective like, or to have made the biggest difference in their lives? I think listening because I'm talking so much about the people who are neurotypical leading the conversation, but I also think that you get a lot of chatters, a lot. And so making someone feel listened or heard. Heard, yes. Is a huge benefit because if I'm sitting there not even paying attention, it's going to make them feel bad. And so it can be very tiring. A whole day of school and then going and just having someone chatter, 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 chatter. I'm like, oh... Sometimes I'm like, I love you, but I just need quiet. But then I think I'm like, well, can I take a piece of this conversation and only focus on that? Because a lot of the chatters, they they scroll. So they're just, you know, going, 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 going. And they think of a muffin. And they think of a muffin man. They think of songs. So it's like their conversations aren't very consistent and they don't really make sense. Well, you're right. There's a lot of thoughts in there that to the to the typical human don't always seem to connect. But at the end of the day, they definitely generally do all connect. But you're right. I think when you hear, when you let people feel heard, when you take the effort and time, you're giving them a piece of dignity that they might otherwise not feel. And by taking a piece of what I hear from them talking and asking them about that, that's telling them, okay, we're going to focus on this in our conversation, because I want to know more about what you think about this. So then we get into some sort of ordinary, uh, you know, you talk, I talk Mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, you're modeling for them how to relate to other people. Because a big thing is imitation. A huge Mm -hmm. thing is imitation. So as long as we're modeling how to be appropriate, how to be interesting, how to hold a conversation with someone, as long as we're doing that appropriately, then they'll sort of start to realize, well, they didn't really want to listen to me talking about dolphins and my trip to the aquarium in 1996. They want to hear about my airplane ride there and how I felt. So taking a section of that and focusing on it, hmm. models, definitely models uh, for that individual. And, and, and I hope that they'll generalize that skill, but if they don't, I'm just happy I got to have that moment with them. I feel like you do such good work, but I also feel like from listening to you talk that you genuinely care about these people. And honestly, Anna, I think that that care comes through. And I think that is the most valuable thing that you're giving them. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for hanging out with me Thank today. you so, so, so much. This is an amazing podcast, and there, we need more of these. We really do. Thank you. I so much appreciate that. Well, thank you also to everybody else out there listening. If you have a chance, 
check out Anna's organization. It's called Project Typical and it's on Instagram. Excellent. So it's at Project Typical on Instagram. You can learn more about Anna and the work she does through her school. And keep on trucking, everyone, because I know that this is not an easy journey for you guys out there. Uh, I hope you join us next week. We're going to talk about unconditional love. Have a wonderful week.